What an amazing thought that it's finished. He's conquered everything that you'll face in this life. He holds the keys of all the hell and all the death that you could ever face. He is for you and not against you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And the Bible says that the light of the righteous grows brighter and brighter. That means everything. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but it does mean that your life gets better and better and better, that we are going from glory to glory. This is going to be a great year. Amen, everybody? Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. His power lives on the inside of you. And there is nothing in this life that can stop you from the life that God has called you to live. I believe the presence of God is in this place today. And I know that if your heart is open to receive from him, that not only is anything possible, but God is going to do something in your life today. Would you open your heart as we close worship and receive it at all of our campuses, God? We declare today, all hail King Jesus. We surrender and submit our lives to you today, once again. Resigning from ruler of our own universe, God, we declare that you're king, that you are our Lord. We thank you for how much you love every person in this place. We thank you for the amazing spiritual journey you have us on. Holy Spirit, we know that you have revelation for us today, something fresh from God's word. Make it come to life. Transform us, change us, God. We don't want to just come to church. We want to meet with you. We want to be changed. So we thank you that you are already at work in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you right now that you're healing those who are sick in their bodies, that you are touching people's finances, that you're mending relationships, God, that you're breaking addictions, God, that you're moving in ways that only you can move. We thank you for this time and your presence. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said amen. Amen. One more time, give God the praise that he deserves. Come on, give me your best. Awesome. Welcome, everybody. At all of our campuses, you can grab your seats. Want to say hello to our campuses. Hello to those of you that are stuck in overflow here at Olson Farms. Hello, hello to those who are watching online, maybe had to stay home or you're traveling today. It's great to have you with us. And then all the correctional facilities across this state. Come on, church, can you put your hands together one more time? Welcome our church family today. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to get there in just a couple of minutes. A couple of things I want to make sure that you know about. We are in our season of fasting and prayer. We started last week. It goes for three weeks. So if you're new to all of this, you have plenty of time to jump in. It's running from the 7th through the 27th. And we are meeting every morning at 6 a.m. for prayer. It's an incredible time in the presence of God at every campus. If you can meet us there, we would love to have you in the room with hundreds of people that are lifting up the name of Jesus and pursuing him. And uh, there's a connection card inside of the welcome guide that we handed everybody on the way in today. And I would love for you to take special attention to the bottom of that card because there's a place where you can fill out your prayer requests. And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but you'll notice that it's perforated so you can separate it from your personal information. That's what we do. Once you turn it in, our ministry staff will separate that card so that your prayer request can be prayed over at the altar without your personal information being attached to it. And I just want you to know here at Itown, we believe in the power of prayer and we are praying every single day. And I would love for your request to be here at the altar for the remaining 14 days of prayer so that we can intercede on behalf of you and your family. So please make sure to fill out the bottom of that card and make sure that you made a prayer list. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. And if that's true, then if you don't have something that you're hoping for, then you can't have faith because faith requires a target. So God wants your life to increase. He wants you to grow. He wants you to develop. He wants you to take on more responsibility and have more resources and be a blessing to more people. That's God's plan for your life. Everything that's healthy grows. So you have to have some targets. You have to have some prayer requests. I'd encourage you to make that list because you can't have faith 
without something that you're having faith for. And the Bible says in just six verses later that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it's very pleasing to him that you would have a prayer list and that you'd be working through it. Prayer targets, ways that you're asking him to move, things that you're believing for in this brand new year. I wanna encourage you to do that. And then jump online if you missed last weekend and check out the message. We talked about fasting. We are in this season of fasting. There's lots of different ways you can participate in the spirit of fasting, which is unplugging from the world, prayer is connecting us to God, and we're changing the spiritual reality of our lives, raising that spiritual temperature, and getting ready for the best year that we have ever had. Amen, everybody? It'll be the best year of your life if it's the best year of your life spiritually. So let's get close to God and let him move. Now, I delivered that message last weekend, and typically on the first weekend of the month for probably the last eight or nine years, I've given our church a word for the year that Kate and I pray and we ask the Lord for a word that would kind of be a prayer focus for us and define where we're going as a church family. And uh, I think we about had a, a revolt last weekend because I didn't give the word and I really tried. I tried to fit it in the message and the Holy Spirit just wouldn't let me. And so people were like, did we not have a word? Did the Lord not speak? Do we not know what we're doing? No, it's all fine. Everybody take a deep breath. I'm gonna give it to you today, all right? <laughs> Y'all ready? So our word for the year, and if you're new to I-Town, we do give a word. We believe the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and there's just one word out of the scripture that kind of resonates with us, that defines what the year will kind of look like. And the word for 2024 is the word care, care. And it's not that we don't care. We're just going to ramp up our efforts in this arena, and I want to explain what that means. Here's our theme verse, Proverbs chapter 29. Now, I promise if you're in Luke chapter 10, I'm coming, all right? We'll be there in just a minute. But Proverbs 29 and verse 7, the Bible says, The righteous care about justice for the poor. The righteous care about justice for the poor. Now, the thing that's interesting is that word care in the Hebrew actually means to perceive or to recognize, to know, or to ascertain by seeing. So what the writer of Proverbs is saying is that righteous people have the ability to perceive or to see or to understand when a person is in a place of deficit. They care, meaning that they're in tune with the emotions and the conditions of the people that live in their sphere of influence, the righteous care. Now, that word poor, they care about the poor. That word poor there is the Hebrew word dal, and it means D-A-L, it means those who are low, those who are weak, those who are poor or needy. Now, the problem with the American church is our lens is geared towards when we say poor, we automatically think people that don't have money. And while that is included in the list, the reality is there's lots of different places that we can experience poverty. There are people in this room today, I'm sure, that are very blessed financially, but you're in poverty emotionally. You're living under a cloud of depression, maybe riddled with anxiety, not able to find any peace. There are people that are really living in a place of poverty in their physical lives, just riddled with pain and sickness and disease. And that's not God's best for your life. And it's the church's job to identify that. There are some people that are just totally bankrupt relationally. Their marriage may be in shambles or maybe they've lost it already and their kids don't want to talk to them and they don't have any close friends and they're living in isolation. There's lots of different ways that we can experience poverty. And the Bible tells us as the church, we are called to care. We're supposed to see the world around us. We're supposed to recognize what's happening in the world around us. And then more than that, we're called to take steps to make a difference, to eradicate the injustices of our community, the things that people are experiencing. And that's one of my passions, honestly, and, and I don't know that we did a very great job. For the first nine years of the church, I would say that we did an incredible job of having awesome weekend services, and then we really did a good job of supporting financially our ministry partners locally, but we didn't do a lot as a church. We gave away some Build-A-Bears. We tried to do a couple of events here and there, but I don't know that we really did as much as we probably could have, or maybe that even we were called to do. And I've always lived with this conviction of if the world were to experience a loss of I-Town, like just say for some reason God just only raptured I-Town. I don't know why that would happen. It's not theologically correct, but just say that happened. Or say for some reason the church just disappeared, like I-Town no longer existed. 
the thing that I wrestle with is, would the community notice? I mean, besides driving by one of our buildings and thinking in Bluffton, who goes to church in a high school? That's ridiculous. They've been there for so long. That's insane. Or drive past Mudsocker, certainly past the Olsen Farms on the highway. That's that cult over there. Look at all those cars on a cold day. They're killing people. It's just terrible. They're just, I told you they're crazy. I knew they were crazy. I posted on Google. They're crazy. And nobody will listen. They're crazy. <laughs> besides that, would anybody, would there be any real impact like my dream is that we would be the kind of church that when we disappear, there'd be orphans that are not cared for and there'd be hungry people that are no longer fed and there'd be those that are naked and needing clothing and they would not find provision because the church has stepped in in so many ways to love and to give and to serve that we are making a tangible imprint in the world around us. Yes, we have great services here, but this honestly is not the church. God's not called us to go to church. God has called us to be the church. And church to me is not the hour, hour and 15 minutes we spend together on the weekend. Church begins when service ends. Church is who we are outside these walls, living in spiritual community and making a difference in the world around us. And I believe that we care. I believe the hearts of our congregation are huge. And what I want to challenge you to do is to step into that giftedness and begin to make the difference God's called you to make in the world around you, to care. Now, the tangible expression of caring is only manifested when we are able to see. Our ability to care is predicated on our ability to see. And that's what I want to talk to you for a few minutes about today is what do we see? Jesus challenged this whole concept in a story that I've actually taught on before a couple of times at the church. And I've given it a fresh study this week and put some time into it. And I believe I have a fresh perspective for you on the Good Samaritan. It's a story that most people have heard about and many of you have heard taught on. It's an interesting story in Luke chapter 10. I told you I'd get there. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. They loved to mess with Jesus and try to expose him as a fraud and mess with his theology. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to pause for a minute and see his perspective. It's very religious because that's all they understood. They comprehended the law. So it's a very works-based kind of religion. What do I have to do? What do I have to accomplish? How much do I have to serve? How much do I have to give in order to have eternal life? How, how can I earn it? And Jesus never really answered questions with answers. You ever notice that? Jesus always answered questions with more questions. I, you ought to try that in your life. When people ask you questions, you should just ask them another question. It's the best way to dodge answering questions. <laughs> so they asked him, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus said in verse 26, basically, you're the expert. What's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? You tell me. And so he answered, well, I think you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. If you do this, you will live. Now, he's not necessarily talking about eternal life. The word live that he uses there is you'll live a fulfilled life. You'll live a satisfied life, a purpose-filled life, the life that God's called us to live here in this life, that if we would give all that we have to the Lord and serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it would overflow in us impacting our brothers and sisters, our neighbors in the world around us. And then in that community in that serving, we would experience what everyone in the world is chasing after with all of the glory and all the gold and all of the achievement and all of the success. It's the life. It's the, it's the meaning. It's the purpose. It's the fulfillment that everybody wants. But verse 29, this religious guy, he wanted to justify himself because he probably wasn't serving people around him as well as he probably could. And he said, well, then who is my neighbor? How far does this go? Do I have to step outside my country? Do I have to talk to people I don't know outside of my sphere of influence? Somebody from maybe a, a different culture, a different religion, different nationality? What does that look like? So this expert in the law is wrestling with, how do I experience true life? What is this thing really all about? 
And Jesus answers the question of who is my neighbor with a story, what we call a parable. He tells a story about the Good Samaritan. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. Now we're in verse 30. He kind of teaches us about three different perspectives of people. He lists three different groups of people. And it kind of represents our perspectives of how we see the world. Verse 30, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he fell into the hand, there he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him. And then they went away, leaving him half dead. So let me give you a little bit of a picture here. Jerusalem is a, a very high city elevation wise. It's up on a mountaintop, which is why in scripture, the Bible says that they went up to Jerusalem because it was like a straight uphill climb. And so this actually was the reverse. They're traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jericho was a city that was beautiful. We read a lot of stories about Jesus in Jericho. It was a stopping place where people would rest before they'd travel up to the city. It actually was a colony of priests that would live there. And they were the ones that would go up and serve in the temple. And then they'd come back down and they would live there uh, in Jericho. And it's about a 20-mile walk, but it's a very treacherous road. In fact, even to this day, it's incredibly windy. It doesn't feel very safe while you're driving on it. And the one written about in Jesus' time was far worse. In fact, it was known as one of the most dangerous passages because of all the rocks and the twisty turns. It was a place that robbers would frequently hide. And there were blood stains on the rocks from people being attacked. And so this was not uncommon for them to hear about a person being attacked along this journey because it was just kind of known that this was pretty unsafe passage. And so Jesus is outlining the story, but he tells of this first group of people who come and attack this particular Jewish person who's on his way. And so it kind of summarizes the first perspective that we have of people. Jot this down if you're taking notes. We see them as a victim to exploit. They saw an opportunity to take from this man what they wanted. And so they jumped out as robbers. They took his clothes, they beat him up, and then they just left him there half dead. Now, I pray that most of us here today are not struggling with, like, Pastor, I mugged somebody again. I just can't. It's a problem of mine. Hopefully that's not your deal. Physical violence is not necessarily one of those things that most people struggle with. So you're like, I can't identify with these guys. But I bet we all could, just a little bit, because in our subconscious, I don't know that we necessarily do it consciously. I don't know how manipulative we are in our conscious mind. But I think subconsciously sometimes we treat people a little like the robbers because we've been taught by this culture that our relationships are not based around what we can give and how we can serve. We're, they're all based around what people can do for us. What can you do for me? In fact, that's kind of the new foundation of marriage. Jerry Maguire ruined the world with the dumbest words I've ever heard. You complete me. False. <laughs> You're still broken, honey. Without Jesus, we all are. And if you're looking for a husband or a wife to be your savior, you're going to die single or you're going to be real frustrated in every marriage you have because Jesus is the only one that can complete us. And I can just tell you, Kate would be so frustrated if I'm trying to be her savior because Lord knows I am flawed and Kate gives me a great amen. Praise the Lord. And so too is every spouse in this room. Your spouse cannot be your savior. They can't complete you. Only Jesus can complete you. So you don't get in a marriage for what you can get out of it. You get into a marriage for what you can give to it as two servants in love. And so too are all our relationships. If we do them right, there's a give and a take. There's an exchange. There's an investment. But I think a lot of us, you know, unintentionally, we're like, yeah, that's, I, I like that friend because that's my country club friend. Praise the Lord, I get to play golf with a nice course when he calls. And I like these friends because they got that sweet boat out on Geist. And a couple of times a year, we get to go ski and don't have to pay for all that gas and don't have to have the boat and the dock and all the headache. And then I got my land guy. He takes me hunting. I think that's great. Man, that place is awesome. I got my Colts tickets hook up. And then I got my Pacers tickets hook up. And I got my Indy 500 tickets hook up. And I'm just kind of working it all so that I enjoy my life. We call it networking. But God calls it manipulating and using people. 
So I just want you all to kind of evaluate your relationships and ask yourself, am I taking more out of these relationships than I'm giving? Is there an even exchange? Is there something that I'm bringing to this or am I only here to take from people? It's why religion burns us out because religion doesn't give you anything in return. It demands everything from you. It's why people hate church because they don't get Jesus, they get religion. Because Jesus is constantly, yes, he requires everything from you, but then he pours every good and perfect gift back to you and blesses your life beyond measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over that you can't even imagine. So in every relationship, we can either be life-giving or we can be life-taking. And I want to challenge us to examine our relational lives. We can sometimes see people as a victim to exploit. What can you do for me? What can I get out of this? Well, then verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and he passed on the other side. Some people see people in crisis, people who are hurting, and they see a problem to avoid. Jot it down if you're taking notes. They see a problem. Now, the thing that's sad is both of these guys should have been the most likely in the story to make a difference. These are the two you could count on. They're the ones who are closest to God. The priests were the ones that offered the sacrifices in the temple. The Levites worked alongside them to support them in their service to God, standing before God for the people of Israel. And yet this group went out of their way to avoid him. Now, some people would say, well, they have an excuse because it's a colony of priests. And, and these are priests, they're, they're traveling uh, probably to or from work. And so, you know, it, they may have seen the guy and thought, well, he's probably dead. He, the Bible says he was half dead. So half dead people could look dead. And, and maybe they were worried if they were to go over and help him, then they would become defiled and they would no longer be pure or clean to be able to do their job to worship before God. And so maybe in their minds, they rationalized the fact that they stepped over this person and avoided them for a higher purpose, that they had a, a bigger calling, something else going on in their lives. And yet we know that that's not true because the only time they needed to be ceremonially clean was when they were serving in the temple. And we know that they weren't serving in the temple because the Jewish culture of the day was that priests and Levites would travel in groups on the way to work and alone when they went home. And so these guys, Jesus made very clear, were both alone which means they had completed their service in the temple. Now they're walking back to the house and they did not have to be clean by ceremonial Jewish law because they were no longer at work. They'd been released for a few days to be on vacation. And so they very well could have helped. Jesus is clear that they went out of their way to avoid. I think sometimes we think that. We see people in crisis, we think, oh, I just don't want to get involved. I, I just, I'll just go the other way. Some, someone else will help. Someone else would probably get better. I, I, I can't get all wrapped up in that. I, I just don't have time to deal with that. So how many times, come on, let's just be honest. We don't have to raise our hands, but just be honest in your heart before the Lord here. How many times have you been out in public, like at Walmart or Kroger or maybe at the mall, and you saw somebody from church or from a circle and you're like, oh man, I remember them and they're like in a lot of crisis and they're kind of a talker and we don't really have a lot of time. Kids, keep your head down. Let's go the other way. It's not time to get caught in a conversation. And then your kids will rat you out. Hey dad, there's Bill from church right there. Why don't you want to talk to him? Isn't it awesome that we see him? He's like, shut up. We're like, keep your head down. Don't make eye contact. I'm aware, but I'm a little apathetic about making a difference. I'm just going to look the other way and hope that maybe I could just say a prayer about it, pray that somebody else fixes it. So then Jesus takes a turn that would have surprised people. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. I learned something this week I've never learned before, where Jesus added this third person, the Samaritan. I found in Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, and a lot of Jewish teaching, it was common to have three different characters in your story. They called it the trilogy. 
And when you'd have a trilogy, there'd always be three people. There would always be a priest, there would always be a Levite, and then there'd always be a Jew, which was just a common Jewish person, an Israelite that wasn't in service to God. And so it was kind of like when you tell a story, you'd always start with, there's, there's a priest, there's a Levite, and a Jew. Kind of like when you have a story that, you know, three people walk into a bar, you know how we have in our culture. Y'all don't know those jokes, like people walk into... I know it's church, but you can admit that you've heard a joke about people walking into a bar. Lord, have mercy. Break the religious spirit off of this service. In Jesus' name, y'all need to be a little freer. I heard about an atheist and a crossfitter and a vegan who walked into the bar together, and everybody knew within the first 10 seconds because they all had to tell somebody. That's funny. I don't care what you say. Atheists are telling you about half to say, you know, I'm an atheist. <laughs> yes, you've mentioned many times. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this story is the curveball. Jesus is like, hey, you remember the one time in the bar where the, the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, they're like, what? A Samaritan? Like, you just messed up the story, man. Because Samaritans weren't really talked about. If you don't know the culture back in the day, the Samaritans had married non-Israelites. So they were considered half Jews, which was a big no-no in their culture. And they had introduced some idolatry. So they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they had other gods they worshiped as well. And so to Jewish people, Samaritans were not even human. You're not going to talk to them. You're not going to acknowledge them. There's open hostility between us. It was bad. And so Jesus brings the Samaritan into the story. And of course, the Samaritan is the one who sees this guy's pain and decides to make a difference. His perspective of the person that had been attacked is he saw a person to be loved. He didn't see somebody to take advantage of. He didn't see a problem he needed to avoid. He saw a human. He saw somebody in crisis and he thought, you know what? I wonder if I can make a difference. And I want you to know, I believe this is the perspective God's called us to as a church in 2024. I believe that there are people that the Holy Spirit is showing you. There are problems in our world that crisis that people are in that keep coming to you. Like you just keep running into the same situation, the same person, the same issue in different people. And I believe it's the Lord calling you to begin to step in to make a difference, to become a good Samaritan in that particular world. But we have to ask ourselves the question, then what would it take? And Jesus tells us very clearly, there's four things I want you to jot down in the last few minutes we have together before we go. This good Samaritan did four simple things. Verse 33, it says, this Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was and he saw him. That word saw in the Greek means to perceive or to notice, to discern, just like our word care. Number one, he need, he, we need to see. It begins with the eyes. Compassion and love begins with what we see. And the reality is there are hurting and wounded people all around us everywhere we go. The reason why the person at Starbucks talks to you way longer as a barista than they should is because they're lonely and they're looking for relationship. The reason why those people in your life fly off the handle and, and, and just are such a short fuse maybe at the office is because maybe there's an addiction or maybe there's an issue. Maybe there's a problem at home. Maybe there's a pressure point somewhere else. It's not about the anger. It's about something deeper. We need to be people to see past what we see on the surface. Jesus, Matthew chapter nine and verse 35, went through all the towns and villages and he was teaching and preaching the good news and healing all the diseases and sicknesses. And when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't see a crowd. He didn't see a group of people. He didn't see his fan base. He saw individuals and he saw what they were navigating. His heart was gripped for their hopelessness and their helplessness and the fact that they needed a savior. They needed someone to bring healing. They needed someone to bring direction. They needed someone to bring life. They needed somebody to minister to them. And Jesus saw that. He's calling us to see the same thing of the people around us. 
In fact, I have this prayer that I got from my pastor, Chris Hodges, years ago, and it's a little outdated, but I wanted to read it to you today because it, it helps us change our perspective. Father, would you help us remember that the jerk who cut us off in traffic last night is actually a single mom who worked nine hours that day and was rushing home to cook dinner and help with homework and do the laundry and spend just a few precious moments with her children. Help us to remember that the pierced and tattooed disinterested young man who can't make change correctly is a worried 19-year-old college student who's balancing apprehension of final exams and his fear of not getting his student loans. Remind us, Lord, that the scary bum begging for money in the same spot every day who really just ought to get a job is a slave to addictions that, only, that we can only imagine in our worst nightmares. Help us to remember that the old couple walking annoyingly slow through the aisles and blocking our shopping progress are savoring this moment, knowing that based on the biopsy that she got back last week, this will be the last year that they can shop together. Heavenly Father, remind us that each day, all the gifts you give us, the greatest gift is love. It's not enough just to love the people that we hold dear. Help us to open our hearts to those who are not as close to us, to all humanity. Let us be slow to judge and quick to forgive. Help us to have patience and empathy and love. I know that I'm guilty of not seeing people for exactly what's going on in their life, to take a step back and to get out of my little selfish bubble of what's going on in my life and to begin to see people. One of my favorite stories that I talk about often is in John chapter four, where Jesus is walking with his disciples and he sends them, of course, on into head to get lunch in town. And he begins to talk to this woman. She's a Samaritan woman, which you gotta love Jesus because if you know anything about culture, Jesus just destroyed all of the parameters that you were supposed to live by as a Jewish man. Like you didn't talk to Samaritans and you didn't talk to women. And he knocked both of them out at the same time, talking to a Samaritan woman in public at a well. Like, I don't care what y'all think. She's a human. I care about her. I'm going to give her time and dignity. And he begins to talk to her. And of course, she's lived this sordid life that, that isn't so great. And Jesus kind of prophetically reads her mail about all the people that she's had as, uh, you know, husbands that she's gone through. And the guy she's living with is not her husband and all the things. And she's like, holy cow. So she runs back to the city and revival's about to take place. Like, it's uh, the whole city's coming to get saved and healed and delivered because this woman is caught on fire. She's encountered the Lord. And the disciples, they've been gone for a long time because you know they were at Chick-fil-A and it don't matter how many lines they have, it takes an hour to get your lunch there. You got to eat in the car. It's a sacrifice to eat the Lord's chicken. But you know that that's what they were having because that's probably Jesus's favorite. So they're gone forever. <laughs> and then they get back with lunch and Jesus is like so fired up about this woman coming and he's trying to get them excited and they're consumed with natural food. They're, they're consumed with what we're eating for lunch and our needs and our world and what we're doing. And Jesus says this simple thing to them in verse 35, would you open your eyes and look? Spiritually, if you'll just pick up your eyes and look around you, there's people all around us. They're ripe for the harvest. In other words, there's no shortage of hurting people. You have it in your heart to make a difference. Well, guess what? The hurting people that you can make a difference in their lives are all around us. We just have to slow down a little bit and care to be able to see. And that's what happens in verse 33. As we open our eyes, he took pity on him. Number two is that we care. Once our eyes are open, then we can be moved with compassion. And that's what we need to pray for, that God would begin to break our hearts. And that's what the message translation actually says. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. All of a sudden, something broke in him. And I pray for this on a regular basis because I'll never forget, I grew up my whole life loving Jesus, going to church. I was a real good, normal, selfish Christian. I love God because I didn't want to burn in hell. I don't know about you, but like, I don't like burning. It's not a thing for me. Being on fire for all eternity sounds awful. Like if they're, if they're like heaven's not that great, it's better than, even if it's mediocre, right? It's better than being on fire 
for all of eternity. Y'all get that? Like it's, I'm, I don't know about y'all and I don't know where you're at in your theology and I know the world's crazy, but I believe in a literal hell that will have hellfire and brimstone and you will be tormented and tortured because you know God is the, is the best at everything. And when he finally gets back at the devil for all eternity, how many of y'all know that could be probably the worst punishment a person could ever receive for all eternity? Why would you ever want to be a part of that? Jesus didn't make hell for the devil or for us. He made hell for the devil. And then some people wind up there that don't receive salvation, don't choose it. I wanted to choose it, but I, you know, just because I want my fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. And of course, you know, if God could throw a few blessings in on top of that bonus, great. But then I was in college at Oral Roberts University and they made us go to church. And I really despise that. I despise, I mean, I just, they made, they forced us. And I'm like, man, I'm an adult now. I, I should be able to choose. You can't make me go to church. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up with a really uh, horrible drug problem. I got drugged to church every weekend of my life. <laughs> now, if you're confused, let me just clarify. I've never done actual drugs in my life. So don't go telling people I had some secret addiction because it's not... It's not true. But after having gone to every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Thursday night service for my entire existence, I was ready to make some choices. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and I was forced to be in, in chapel, so I was there begrudgingly. But then this guy got up and he preached about the persecuted church and about the underground church in China and about souls that are being saved. And I don't know what it was about that service. I couldn't even tell you who it was that preached the message. I don't even know their name. But something hit me that service. And I just started to weep about lost people in Asia. I'm not, I couldn't tell you why. It just broke my heart. The idea that people are living in these conditions and are far from God. And then the persecuted church has given their lives to Christ. And they actually risk like going to prison just for going to church. But they still go to church anyway. Because they believe in it, the gathering of the saints, and they're still writing Bibles, and they're still preaching the gospel, and they're riding on bicycles, and they're walking in bare feet in the cold just because they know that the wonder-working, miracle-working power of God is for today, and the good news of the gospel needs to be preached, and it just wrecked me. <laughs> like. God, I'm such a soft first world Christian. I just wept and wept and wept. I ended up spending two and a half years on the mission field living in the Philippines and traveling into China. I took a trip with my grandfather to China when I was 17 and God transformed my life. But I think that that process has to happen again and again and again where the Holy Spirit wakes us up from our callous existence. It's all about us and reminds us there are hurting and broken people all around us. And when's the last time we shed a tear about the fact that people we care about are headed to a Christless eternity where they will burn themselves in hell forever? It's kind of sobering thought. God's breaking our hearts, and I pray that he breaks your heart during these 21 days for something, because there's crisis all around us. Listen to this. There's over 730,000 people in Indiana without food. That makes no sense. We feed the world. Of those 730,000, 204,000 of them are children. <laughs> That's not right. We should make a difference. And I'm thankful that we, we're working on it. We're very close. We've got a couple of IPS schools that have already said yes to refrigerators and boxes for Feed Your Neighbor. We've got organizations that have stepped up and said, hey, I'll give you all the eggs you could ever give away. And we, we've got people in Bluffton that have already packaged up meat. They're ready to send it down. We've got people that are giving fruits and vegetables. We've got organizations that are coming alongside. <laughs> Praise God. The IMPD is assigned an officer to go check our refrigerators, make sure people aren't stealing them. You know, like the Lord is really working, but we're going to need people to help. We need people to pack things. And as we get this ministry off the ground in the next couple months, there's going to be lots of opportunities to serve. But then at the same time, there's over 2,000 people in our own state that are dying from drug overdose every single year. There's over 1,000 people committing uh, suicide. There's over 14,000 children who are orphans in the foster care system. And on and on and on we go. The truth is there are crises all around us.
And God has called us to make a difference. So we have to see so that God can break our hearts so that we care. But then the Bible says in verse 34, he went to him. We actually have to stop. Too many people run from the problem, just like the religious people. We're called to be people that run to the problem. I think too many times we're a bit apathetic. Someone else will do it. Someone else will, you know, it's pro- I'm probably not the one. I'm probably not qualified. I, I don't really want to get wrapped up in this. I don't really have time. Proverbs chapter 3 says, never walk away from someone who deserves help because your hand is God's hand for that person. You know, it's easy for all of us to say with great conviction, someone should do something. We believe it. The thing that's funny to me is that we never really want, wanted to create lots of ministries of the church. You know, it's a more traditional model. You have a men's ministry, and you have a women's ministry, and, and you throw these big breakfasts and events, and you hire all this staff, and you pull off all this stuff so you can get people together. But the truth is, I believe the way God created the local church is that he gave ministers, people like me, the job of equipping you to do the ministry. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible says, that we're supposed to equip you for your acts of service. You know why? Because in so many cases, if we would release ministry to you, it will be so much broader and so much better than if we tried to do it on our own. So we have this philosophy here that we don't actually recruit people to anything. I will never recruit you to a team. I'll never recruit you to do a specific ministry. Because that means that I'm trying to manipulate you into doing something that you probably don't want to do. So what we try to do in the grow plan is our job is to discover the gifts that God has placed in your life. Help us understand your passion. What crisis keeps you up at night? What kind of a situation makes you angry? And what makes you cry? Because if we can find those things, then we can figure out how to get behind you and to support you. So if you've gone through the growth plan, you've been around the church for a while, and you see a deficit. Man, we really ought to have a men's ministry. You know, we don't do very good at reaching this particular group of people. I don't see something in this ministry for divorced left-handed golfers who like Indianapolis Colts. I don't see that ministry. Where's that ministry? If you don't have the ministry that you want, guess what? I always say, it's because you haven't started it yet. It's because you're called to do it. God sent you here to help us with it. And you're going to keep fussing about the fact we don't have it until you start it. Because the reason why you're upset about it is because you have a heart for it. And God has empowered you to be the leader. So let me get behind you and resource you however I can so that we can help you be successful in the dream that God has placed in your heart. That's why we do circles in the free market system. Because you get to make up any ministry you want. And we 100% get behind you. Man, it's quiet in this Baptist church. You're all like, you're going to make me do something? Yes. Yes. We are not called just to attend church. We're called to be the church. And it's more than the hour we spend together on the weekend. It's the life that we live between Sundays. And there's a world that you are called to impact. Our circle semester is starting in just a couple of weeks in February. And we would love to have you as a leader. We'd love to empower you to do the ministry that God has placed inside of your heart. Some people are called to men. Some are called to women. Some are called to youth. Some are called to people walking through divorce. Some are called to people walking through crisis. Some would love to help with Feed Your Neighbors. Some would love to help with all of our foster care outreaches and and ministry. Some would love to help people in the journey of discipleship. It doesn't matter what it is that God's placed in your heart. It's a yes for us as long as it's biblically accurate. We want to get behind you. Verse 34, so check out what he did. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to the inn and took care of him. I want to just say something to you for a minute because a lot of people think, I can't, it's over my head. I don't have the right leadership gifts and I haven't been a Christian very long and I just don't have the tools. I just want you to know when God calls you, he always resources you. He never asks of you something that you do not have. When he looked at Moses and said, I want you to free my children. He said, I'm not capable. And God said, what did I put in your hand? He said, I got a staff. And he said, I want you to lay it down. It's already in your life. 
He took the oil that he had. He took the wine that he had. He took the donkey he already had because God didn't ask him to use something he didn't have. He just asked him to be faithful with what he did have. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to have a lifetime of victory and freedom. You don't have to be a perfect person. You just have to be willing to listen. You know, some of the best leaders in life are just the ones that actually care and will listen to people because that's what most people need. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And, and then when I return, I'll reimburse you if any extra expense that you have. Number four, as we close, we have to give. We have to put it into action. We have to give of our time. We have to give of our talent. Sometimes we have to give of our resources. We can give of our wisdom. We can just give of ourselves and be present. God's called us to make a difference. Don't diminish your ability to make an eternal impact in the lives of people around you. And I just want you to know that the devil has some of you sitting on the sidelines believing that you're not good enough, you're not equipped enough, you're not holy enough, you're not prepared enough. And yet I would tell you as your pastor that someone else's eternity is waiting on the other side of your obedience. All you have to do is say yes, and God will use what you have in your life to make an eternal impact in the lives of other people. Don't stay on the sidelines because if you want to experience true life, Jesus said, Give me everything you got, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then let that overflow to people, and you'll experience life. And don't get overwhelmed by helping people, because I want you to know that this church is an innkeeper. Every time you see somebody that's hurting, you're not called to be that person's one-on-one discipler for the rest of their life, and they don't have to look to you for every single answer, and you're thinking, my God in heaven, this person's going to drown me forever. No, you bring them to the inn, and you drop them off. The Good Samaritan didn't stay with this dude for the rest of his life at the end. He took him to the end and said, hey, this dude's hurting. Y'all need to take care of him. And that's what the church is for. You bring the hurting here and we will get them connected. We'll get them plugged in. We will help them serve. We'll see their life transformed. And someday they're going to be leading a group that's rescuing people just like you were leading a group that's rescuing people because this is how the gospel is built. That's how it works. Check out The secret to it all is we close. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10, it says, if you'll spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, if you'll satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then guess what happens? Then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The the Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. See, the thing that's so amazing about our God is you're thinking, man, I can't, I can't serve and I can't lead because look at me, I'm in this place of darkness and I don't really have clarity and I don't feel the direction. I don't know if I'm hearing God's voice. I feel this desire to make a difference and I know that I could probably do a little something, but I just don't know. I mean, look at me, I'm in a place of need. But did you know that the way to get all those things fixed is not to focus on yourself, it's to focus on others? Because the Bible says that if you'll just spend yourself on behalf of the people that are hungry, even though you might be hungry yourself, that in return, God will satisfy your needs. He'll lift that depression. He'll free you of that anxiety. He'll heal your body. He'll touch your life. He'll restore your marriage. He'll touch your children because what you do for others, God will always bring back to you. So let's stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on the world that so desperately needs us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to pray today that God would give you clarity and boldness as we all collectively embrace the responsibility that the righteous care about the justice of the poor. We're a church that cares. We want to make a difference. And I know you care. And I know you want to make a difference. And I'm praying that God would give you the clarity and the boldness to step out in faith this year. To see miracles take place. But before I pray that prayer, I wonder how many people at all of our campuses are here today and are far from God. You know, there's a million ways that we get there. Maybe you've never known the Lord. Or maybe you knew him and 
your relationship with him just drifted or maybe you got hurt by the church or a person that you trusted and you felt like, man, God wasn't there for me. The truth is, sin doesn't work. And if you're in that place, I guarantee that you're hurting today. And I want you to know that Jesus is the answer. The Bible says that in salvation, he rescues us. He refreshes us. He renews us. He gives us a brand new heart, a brand new start. And that's what you need. That's what we all need at the beginning of a brand new year. So if that's you today, don't leave here that way. Because God loves you. I believe he has you here for this moment because he's been chasing you for a while. Would you surrender your life to him? I'm not going to make you stand or come to the front. I just want to pray a prayer with you right where you're at. Our campus pastors are joining me on the stage and all of our campuses, they're going to lead you and your prayer. But before we do that, if that's you, would you do me the favor before we pray just to lift your hand up high with no one looking around to say, Dave, that's me. I need that fresh start today. I need Jesus in my life. I'm ready to surrender to him. Come on right now. Just put your hand up high all across this place. If that's you, just for a moment, be bold. Yeah, that's awesome. Great job. Incredible. All right, you can put your hands down if you haven't already. Here's what we'll do. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. You can pray it quietly in your heart. You just need to mean it. Just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me today for all of my sins. God, I repent. And I surrender to you. I put my trust in you. And I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me, God, to live for you and help me to make a difference. In Jesus' name I pray. God, I thank you for this incredible congregation, for this movement that's ready to make a difference and is already making such a difference in the world around us. God, I pray that you would empower each and every one of them to step out and to serve and to love and to give as you develop our heart. Break our hearts, God, this year. Help us to care. God, we celebrate in advance the eternal impact that we'll be able to make in the world around us. We're so thankful for how faithful you are. One last time, we declare our complete dependence upon you, God. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, church, would you put your hands together and celebrate all those who prayed that prayer today? Thank you so much for joining iTown Church online today. We would love to have the chance to meet you and your family in person at one of our campuses. Or, of course, you can join us streaming live online this weekend. Now, for more details about times and locations and even some of our streaming options, you can go to itownchurch.com. I sure hope to see you soon, and God bless.